Hi, and welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 18, The Journey to Dinotopia and Beyond, with artist, writer, and illustrator James Gurney. Welcome to 2020, and welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed your time off, if you took some. Thank you again for your ongoing support. I'm so grateful that I have the privilege of being able to do this show on a regular basis. I am really enjoying this experience. I feel like it is contributing to me becoming a better artist. And I hope you're seeing the impact as well. I mean, that's why we're all here and that's why I'm doing this. So thank you once again. Okay, so let's uh, jump into some updates here. So we celebrated uh, Christmas and as part of that, I received some new uh, art supplies. I got some Escoda Versatile Travel Brushes. So there's a set of three, three different sizes. And uh, they collapse down, so they're perfect for urban sketching. And I've done a couple of watercolor pieces. I think they are fantastic. I uh, I got them based on uh, Anna Bucciarelli's uh, YouTube video, and where she had reviewed them, and uh, she was bang on. These are fantastic, so I'm really enjoying these uh, travel brushes. In addition to that, I got some Richardson uh, plein air travel brush set. So this was based on a recommendation from James Gurney. And so I got those as well. And they're, they're really nice because they are very small and they allow me to do some detail work once again with watercolor or gouache. And uh, I haven't used them as much. I did, I did use them on one painting, but I haven't had enough time to play with them yet. But I'm really excited about these because once again, they're small and I can take them with me when I start doing a bit more plein air through the winter this year. We've been watching The Mandalorian, which was a fantastic series. I'm not going <laughs> to spoil it for anybody. But based on that, I haven't really watched The Clone Wars, which is a previous animated series. So I started watching that again. And the only reason I mention this is that while I was watching it, I had my iPad handy and I started drawing some uh, some of the characters from the show. I really want to do more of that. I, I think that we have this opportunity either through sketchbooks or through iPads to be able to just have them in our lap and just be able to throw something down. And I'm going to try to do more of that. I hope that you do as well. Uh, James talks about this in the interview that's coming up. And uh, so I, I I wanted to post a link to that. They're not great, but it was just something I was doing while I was watching the show. And uh, this idea of being able to sketch maybe in an airport, in a cab, you know, obviously you shouldn't be doing it at work or at school maybe, but <laughs> just when you have that opportunity, just being able to uh, to pick up your iPad or a pen and pencil and uh, a pad and, and being able to put down some ideas, I think we have don't have to have it perfect. And I keep saying this because I'm trying to tell myself that I need to be able to uh, grant myself that opportunity to be able to just sketch, just throw something down that may not be finished, that may be rough, and um, then be able to move on from that. I also did uh, another couple of sketches, once again with animals. I did a lion, which uh, took me a fair bit of time. I wanted to get the grass just right, so I think I spent a fair, I'm going to say two hours maybe, on this line, just trying to get uh, the fur and the and the uh, the grass and everything, uh, the textures uh, clean. I was working on some uh, negative drawing, and uh, I'm happy with how it turned out. I, I think I have it a bit too well groomed to the lion, but I wasn't trying to be uh, wasn't trying to spend a whole lot of time on this. I was just once again working on this idea of different types of fur on something like a lion and the images uh, is from a, uh, or the reference photo is from an image or a photo I took at a, a zoo a while back. I also had a chance to go back and finish 
a sketch I did in Almont, I had been doing a, an ink sketch, and then it started to rain <laughs> back in the fall. And so I had an opportunity with the new brushes I got to go in and color with some watercolor, uh, some Daniel Smith colors that I have. I decided to um, to color in this uh, sketch that I had done back in the fall. And so I'll post a link to that too. That was kind of fun. So I also did some hummingbirds. That I chose because, I mean, we love hummingbirds here, but I wanted to do a hummingbird in flight and trying to do that with graphite. I think I, I, I'm not, I'm going to try it again because I'm happy with it, but I think I can do better. But uh, once again, I have, uh, there's two hummingbirds. One is um, sitting on kind of a, it's a piece of metal that we have here, kind of a shepherd's hook. And the other is in flight. And that was, that was cool. I mean, I love drawing birds. You'll see a lot more of those. And the final drawing I wanted to mention is a a koala bear drawing. I'm going to talk about this in the interview as well, but uh, I'll provide a link to it. And I did this just because of the uh, awful, awful fires happening in Australia. And I felt compelled to do this. It was quite an emotional piece for me to work on. So I know many of us want to be able to reach out and help uh, those people and animals in Australia that are they're really struggling right now. And so I've provided a link to an Australian news site. And they have a whole series of organizations listed on one page. So if you wanted to give to the Red Cross or you wanted to give to uh, some of the firefighters or to some of the animal hospitals, uh, that choice is up to you. But I, I encourage you to check out the link and see if there's some way that you can support uh, what's happening in Australia. It's just breaking my heart, and um, it's tough to see. And I think that anything we can do to support our uh, friends down under, uh, we should do. So I encourage you to uh, follow that link and see what you can do. So that's it for updates. I just wanted to mention we had some technical difficulties in this podcast, so I had to rely on a, a backup for the interview. So I do apologize for the quality of the audio, but uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. I did, and there were a massive number of links in this episode that I have included in the show notes. My journey in becoming an artist was triggered over a decade ago by drawing a Triceratops dinosaur for my daughter. My guest developed his own world called Dinotopia, where humans and dinosaurs live together, and even has a dinosaur named after him. As an artist, writer, and illustrator, he has published numerous books, illustrated many others, created instructional videos, and blog posts. In fact, I am on a second read of his book, Color and Light, which is fantastic. His YouTube videos continue to document his wonderful plein air paintings of places around the world and those just around the corner. Welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, James Gurney. How are you? Thank you, Mike. Good to be part of your podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. I've uh, I've been following your work for some time, and I w- was really looking forward to this opportunity to, to sit down and talk with you about your work and your experiences and what you can share to to, to the listener and, and some of your uh, all the work you've done over a number of, of decades. We won't go into the details <laughs> about the numbers. <laughs> Um, but I, I can say this, I know it's always a special day when I see one of your YouTube videos uh, pop to the top of my uh, YouTube subscription page. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, doing YouTube videos is fairly time-consuming, uh, but it's great fun, and uh, I think it's one of the livelier of the social media that I'm involved in, just because there's a lot of comments and questions, and it's a real community, and um, 
and so I enjoy doing it. Yeah, and you're, I mean, you've been so accessible through all of this. It's it's just wonderful. I mean, uh, we'll get into that, but I think you're, uh, the educator component of you is is something we all appreciate. So thank you, and thank you for doing it. Uh, it is hard work doing YouTube videos. <laughs> I can appreciate that. One thing we have in common, and we can talk about this, is we're both more or less self uh, educated in art, uh, or we have unconventional uh, educations, and I think that's that's something that probably a lot of your listeners have too. That they're teaching themselves, they're figuring it out, they're going to websites, they're listening to podcasts, and they're trying to piece together an idea of how you go about doing this thing of making pictures and making a living at it. Exactly. So I think uh, you know when you think of art and drawing and, and your, you know, all the work that you've done, is this, can you remember the first time you thought about, you know, the fact that I want to be an artist? Is it something you always did or where does that come from? Well, I started drawing at a young age. I remember one of the first drawings I ever made was a, I took a piece of uh, a, a wrapper from a double mint gum wrapper and stuck it down with some Elmer's glue onto a piece of paper and do some arms and a head and a couple legs. And it was a little human. And, and <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and I remember doing that and just thinking, wow, you can make something out of nothing. Um, but it was later on that my older brother, Dan, who was kind of my first mentor in art, um, drew a square and then he drew diagonals coming out of all the corners and then connected them with a second square. And he said, look at that. It's a, it's a 3D. It's a cube. <laughs> and that blew my mind. I remember just what a rush that was to realize that you could create the third dimension with just plain lines on a paper. But I have to say, I was kind of frustrated at how difficult it was to get across perspective. And I didn't understand it for another 15 years or so. And um, so drawing was always exciting, but also frustrating for me as a kid. And um, and when I would have a breakthrough, it was always a thrill. My brother and I would sit there and we, we sailed uh, sailboats a lot in Palo Alto, California, where I grew up. And we would draw pictures of the boats that we sailed on, El Toros and Hobie Cats and, and other boats. And, and we were very particular about our drawings because we knew something about boats. And whenever we looked at, together at another person's drawing of a boat, we would just completely rip it to shreds and say, oh, look at that. They drew too much uh, slack in the clue and they would, they didn't get the halyards right and they didn't get the, uh, the boom bang right. And, and, you know, we would just rip it to shreds. And I think that's true for anyone when it, when they have something that they love and are interested in, when they start drawing and use that as a as an entry point for drawing, um, it's a real uh, it's a real great way in. Do you uh, do you catch yourself doing that when you look at other people's art all the time? Does that ever go away? Well, I mean, I don't really look <laughs> I don't look at other people's art the way I did when I was a kid. I mean, looking for flaws or something like that. But I just to me, I I would uh, enjoy that magic of drawing where you'd start with something. And, uh, and, and turn it into something else. Like I remember I was in a dissection class in seventh grade and we were dissecting earthworms and I drew a whole bunch of earthworms piled up so they looked like spaghetti. And then I drew a guy like eating the spaghetti and I'd love the feeling of grossing people out with a drawing. Uh, <laughs> so it was kind of a magical thing. So from there, did you pursue art, uh, like formally or did you, uh, what was your journey from that point? Well, there, there was an art class in eighth grade and ninth grade and, I, and the, there were people in it and I, and I tried taking art classes, but I didn't really enjoy the way art was taught. It was taught in terms of Kaiman Nicolaides' book on, um, what was it called? Uh, the Natural Way to Draw, where you draw with contour drawing mm -hmm. and gesture drawing. And it didn't make sense to me because I had other books on drawing. Uh, there were a much older books that um, one called Drawing Made Easy from the 1920s. And that book um, 
took an approach where you draw simple geometric shapes, and then you'd analyze any object in terms of these these basic um, shapes, drawing the outside envelope or a, kind of a polygon around an object. And that made much more sense to me than the way that they were teaching it in the high school. So I kind of branched off from the formal art classes and instead took graphic arts. And that meant uh, learning about printing, learning about photography, how to run a press, um, and basic animation. And that's where I really got excited. And I learned how to do old-fashioned calligraphy lettering okay. based on a book from um, a book on uh, a lettering from about 1915. Uh, so I was doing, when I was in Still in high school, I was doing wedding invitations for people. I'd go to print shops and show them my portfolio and get you know get some assignments, doing uh, invitations and menus, things like that. So I realized you could actually make money at this uh, at a pretty young age. <laughs> that's uh, that's good because people even even my age still can't make money at art. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but mostly what I was doing during that time was not so much drawing and painting as I was um, making models of boats and airplanes and kites and three-dimensional sculptures. Uh, Drawing still, the the perspective of of things still frustrated me um, because I didn't have a teacher to help me with that. So I had to kind of figure that out later and instead work on making three-dimensional objects. Okay. Did you pursue art in college or? uh... Well, I did start getting a job in graphics when I was still in high school at a place called uh, Sun and Sun Graphics. It was basically they were doing advertising um, paste up, which for people who were a younger generation, um, before you had computer compositing for lettering, you'd have to literally wax the back, glue the back of, of the lettering and paste it down onto um, a black and white layout sheet. And that would be printed as a newspaper ad. So I worked at a company where I did that after school, Okay, rode my bike there, you know, and, and um, got some experience doing that. And I wanted to go on to art school to study all this. And my parents uh, advised me. They said, "Well, before you go to art school, you should take some time out and study a variety of liberal arts topics. You know, anything history and English and and drama and whatever uh, whatever topic interests you. Mm-hmm. And because you can always specialize later, but you can't ever have that opportunity in your life to study a little of everything." So I took their advice and I went to UC Berkeley. I majored in archaeology and I um, I studied a little astronomy, a little paleontology. All these things, these are topics I didn't have to worry about getting a job in because I knew I'd go to art school and specialize in art later. Right. You got an archaeology degree at that point, and then you went to art school? Yeah, I, I got an archaeology degree. I worked at the uh, Krober Museum of Archaeology, where I got a chance to go in the back of the museum that was filled with all these uh, mummies and grass skirts and all these artifacts, and I, I, I did careful renderings and scratchboard of Egyptian scarab beetles with all the hieroglyphs carved on one side. Uh, and they were, um, they had to be very, very exact drawing for archaeological publications. Okay. And it was a great education for me. And it was also a good chance to hang around mummies and artifacts and archaeological stuff. So later on, that, that served me well when I was uh, illustrating archaeology for National Geographic. But at the time, I, I never figured I'd do anything professionally associated with that. That's that's really cool. I mean, I've I know that the local museums here have days where you can go in behind the scenes and look at that stuff, and that, that would just be so uh, <laughs> so inspiring. I think, especially if you're coming at it as an artist, right, and and seeing all the stuff oh, yeah. around you. Well, a lot of archaeologists and paleontologists are pretty good artists because they have to be, 
they have to look at the bones or look at the artifacts and figure out how one is different from another and look for uh, characteristics that they can describe in their scientific papers. And um, they need illustrations that can carefully explain uh, what are the diagnostic features of a given object. So, so that was something that I could see from the point of view of an expert, you know, even as an undergraduate. And then later on, when I was meeting up with scientists, I realized that uh, what they do is, uh, is a matter of just really describing and understanding what they're looking at. Through that time, were you doing a lot of painting or was it mostly uh, drawing or was it a mix or? It was mostly drawing. I, okay. uh, painting was still pretty much a mystery to me. I had seen an exhibit of Norman Rockwell's paintings when I was still 12 or 13. And I couldn't understand how he did that in color and three dimensions. And what I had been doing was pen and ink and charcoal and pencil. Uh, and I couldn't really break through into color until I was into my 20s. So that was still a mystery um, until I got to art school and met a few people who, who were, were much more experienced with color and painting. And that's when I started to break into color. And so when you got to art school, did your interests stay with archaeology and 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 that kind of material and you just change your medium a little bit or how did that how how did you change you know starting art school and then leaving art school well i came to art school with a lot of expectations for what they'd be teaching there i thought they'd be teaching animal anatomy and uh you know how animals are put together and composition and storytelling and um, kind of narrative illustration which is what i was familiar with you know, as a kid, I had grown up on um, Norman Rockwell and NCYF and Howard Pyle. So I was a kid who'd grown up on this golden age uh, illustrated books that my, my mom had had when she was a girl. And uh, these illustrators were not uh, not only not talked about in art school. If you mentioned Norman Rockwell, they would have chased you out of there with a pitchfork. This is in the <laughs> early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. So they were very unpopular at the time. Everyone was focused on editorial illustrations for, for magazines. There was no mention at all of paperback covers or children's book illustration um, or uh, archaeological illustration or natural history illustration. Uh, and so I realized that the school couldn't really serve me in that whole area. There were a couple of good teachers at art school, but you'd have to wade through a lot of really nonsense classes to get to those good teachers. So instead, I, I dropped out after two semesters of art school and I got a subscription to the Natural History Museum and the zoo. And I went there every day instead and just sketched from live animals and then went to the natural history and sketched from skeletons. And that was really how I fed my artistic uh, interest in, in that area. Wow. Do you think that art schools have changed? Oh, yeah. I think art schools have gotten a lot better. I mean, they've gotten, at least some of them have. And we've gone to a lot of art schools in the course of visiting, you know, the various programs, and they're much, much better, I think, in general than, than they were back in the late 70s. It was kind of a dark age for animation and a dark <laughs> age for illustration, in my opinion, but, but I think it's gotten better. I, I still am a real believer, though, in self-teaching, being able to go out there and follow your interests and training yourself. There's so many, I mean, at the time, I was mainly learning out of books, like the famous artist course and Andrew Loomis's creative illustration, which thankfully is back in print again. Right. Um, and so I, I was learning a lot uh, and a lot faster by studying directly from the artists through their writing in those books. Uh, but there are a lot of great teachers there out there now who um, are, you know, are my age or who have grown up from a similar background, but who wanted to 
kind of go back to the golden age of illustration or the academic period and to kind of revive some of the methods that were used back then. Right. And so my question, uh, I guess, around this is, you know, when it comes to drawing and illustration, how important do you think, uh, for the person listening, how how important do you think it is to spend time on that, to maybe take a course? Do you think that's core to everything? Well, I think people have a lot of options for how they can learn now. Mm-hmm. You can learn by looking at YouTube videos. You can learn from books. You can learn from online courses. You can learn from actual workshops. And then there's art schools. You know, art schools in general are, are a lot, especially if they're certificate programs, they, are very, they can be very expensive. So you have to think carefully before you commit to that. One of the benefits of art school, I think, is being around other students, not just around other teachers, around teachers, but around other students seeing how they solve problems. Right. And um, I happened to live in an apartment building where uh, I met uh, a young lady, my, who ended up being my wife, who was my sketching buddy. And we would talk art all the time, go to art museums and go to uh, libraries that had art books and talk about that. Uh, I had a good friend named Tom Kincaid, who later became the painter of light. But at the time, he and I were um, sketching buddies. We ended up, when we dropped out of art school, we rode the freight trains across America. and we. Um, we sketched in lumber camps and gravestone cutters workshops, and we, we met all kinds of characters and got to New York with this idea for a book on sketching. Now, this was a time when there was no urban sketching, there was no plein air painting. Nobody was doing outside painting on location. Hmm. And it was just something that we read about, Andrew Wyeth and some of the early guys doing. And so we figured we should do that. So we went around, we got matching uniforms that we found at a uniform store. It said Jim and Tom. <laughs> and uh, we met all these like gangsters and we got on radio and we we rode across to New York and sold the publisher, Watson Gupta, the publisher, on this idea for a book, which ultimately became The Artist's Guide to Sketching, um, published in 1982. We were the youngest authors they had ever had. And that's really where I got my education was in writing that book. Huh. That's uh, that's cool. I mean, in some ways, I'm looking for my education through doing this podcast. So I guess uh, maybe we are more similar than we think. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. I think that I wanted to touch on that because when I when I was reading about you online and and your materials and that kind of stuff, you know, y- you are a fantastic artist, um, but you're an educator, and you st- it really started early for you, right? In doing that first book, you're so good at telling your story in a way that people can consume it and and translate that into what they're drawing or what they're doing. Uh, is that is that who James is? Are you because you, you it seems like you feel compelled um, and and you're so passionate about your YouTube videos and um, and all the work that you do. Is that am I right in that in, in that you feel that you need to pass this on? You need to share it. Well, I'm I suppose I have always been interested in writing as much as painting and either writing uh, writing to tell a story to go along with the pictures like I did with the Dinotopia book, mm-hmm. but also in the art instruction books, writing and voiceover and videos to kind of make intelligible the thought process that's behind the drawing. Uh, I think that's the challenge is, is when you're doing a picture, your, your brain is doing things which are kind of nonverbal uh, as you sort through the shapes and the colors of the subject you're painting, whether it's imaginary or whether you're painting what you see. And I love that challenge of trying to not only do a picture uh, visually and show the process, but to explain the, the thought process inside the mind as you make a series of decisions and run, a, run up against brick walls partway through and, and figure out how to get around them. So, so that's part of the fun for me of 
of doing the, the videos for doing the book on color and light and the other book on imaginative realism. Um, what I wanted to do was to write the book that I wish I had when I was a student mm-hmm. and to go through and, and kind of connect together light and color, which I hadn't found a book that had done that before. And to go through and understand what are the physics of color in terms of the light and optics, um, what's going on with visual perception and with our human eyes, and then what about the pigments of color and how do, how do all those three different variables intersect when it comes to mixing colors, uh, coming up with color schemes, uh, representing reality. So that's what I was trying to do with Color and Light. And I was trying to kind of flush out all the dogma that I had read that didn't seem to make sense. I think there's a lot of dogma in the color field. And I wanted to take a fresher idea, uh, some of which was, was drawn from the deep past and some of which was drawn from the breaking new science. Uh, and uh, the response to that book has been very good. It uh, came out in 2010 and it's it's been a bestseller uh, on Amazon since then. And, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to the readers of my blog because a lot of the content for that book came from blog posts that I had written starting in about 2007, uh, where I'd write a, just download all my thoughts about color and color wheels and uh, graphics and things. And based on the responses and the other questions that came back and the dialogue that we got going on the blog, it helped me to kind of clarify my understanding of the subject. You know, I didn't know what to expect when I got the book, and then I read through it, and it, I mean, it's very well written. It's, you know, it's broken up into nice, small segments, so you can, you know, flip through it for 10, 15 minutes or an hour, and be able to drop it and come back to it. And I just, I read through it once, and it's like, there is way too much information here. I'm going to have to read this probably five or six more times, um, because there's parts of it that are very clear to me, and other parts I've just never thought about. And I've always been, I shouldn't say I've always, I've been quite consumed by kind of graphite work historically. I've just moved into watercolor last year. And so when I look at this, it's a whole new world for me. It all makes so much sense, but it's something I've not thought about, right, in the way that that light um, is reflected, the the idea of, of, you know, the gamut and and changing that and, and, you know, even the stuff that you do in your YouTube videos where you're talking about reducing your palette to just a few colors and generating uh, the same scene using three colors that you would not think would make sense, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the journey that brought me into color is the same one that you're dealing with, too, where you're, you're pretty experienced with value light and dark and, and drawing. Mm-hmm. But when you get into color, you're dealing with the hue, the, you know, the yellow, blue, green, or purple or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, but also the chroma. And dealing with the two of those extra variables adds so many different choices that it can be overwhelming. And that's why I think easing into color through first working in monochrome and then working with um, black and white and one color and then working with just a simple two-color uh, complementary palette, like blue and burnt sienna, mm-hmm. uh, and then working with a real simple pr- triad, picking three colors and white, and just using those. Uh, I still do that when I'm painting on location, just to pick a, a simple triad and try a color I'd never tried before, like Paraline Maroon was my favorite one recently, <laughs> because I, it's just a, got a great name, for one thing. <laughs> right. Paraline Maroon, it's almost the name of a pirate or something. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and anthroquinone blue, uh, and uh, all these colors that uh, I've never really played with before. They have each one has different properties, and the only way you get to know those properties is, is through using that blue as your only blue, and seeing what it does in tints, and seeing what it does in mixtures with other adjacent colors. 
So it's a, the color is a, is a, is a field in practice uh, that involves really a lot of variables. And I think the key to learning it is to break down those variables so that you can kind of tackle them one at a time. Right. So I, I wanted to, I mean, we, we can't uh, have a conversation without us talking about Dinotopia a little bit, because um, that seems like that was probably a huge segment of your life uh, with regard to the work that you've done. Uh, I may be overstating that. I may not be. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it's huge. And I wanted to ask you about that because the uh, maybe you can talk about your journey to Dinotopia and, and how you got there. But I think a lot of artists think about doing a book, right? And it may be a children's book because that's easy to get into. But maybe you can talk a little bit about Dinotopia, how you got there, and maybe um, what you learned from that process. Sure. Dinotopia really began as a series of individual paintings not with a whole idea kind of cooked up in advance in, uh, in some binder where I had laid it all out. I was working as a paperback cover artist doing science fiction and fantasy paperback covers. And I was also doing scenes for National Geographic where I would travel with archaeologists on location and I'd reconstruct um, ancient civilizations like the Etruscans in Italy or the Moche in Peru. And I would imagine these scenes based on the fragmentary evidence in the ground. And whenever I would talk with the archaeologists about their dreams, they would always say, I would love to find the next Troy or, or the next El Dorado or, or Atlantis. And I realized that I could, in my spare time, do paintings like that of Lost World. So it started as a series of panoramic scenes of uh, lost cities, first uh, a waterfall city and then a dinosaur parade and a city built on top of a mountain. And these were just separate images, uh, kind of like fantasy ideas. And it was later that I realized I could tell a story of, a, of an explorer who arrived on this island where all these different places existed and tie them together with a kind of a 19th century narrative. So the idea for Dinotopia, which became an illustrated book for older readers, mm-hmm. um, it kind of came out of these by stitching together these paintings in the form of a journal. The first book came out in 1992. Uh, from Turner Publishing, and it was 160 pages, um, all illustrated in oil. It looks like watercolor, but it's actually in oil. And then I went on to do uh, three other books in 1995, 99, and 2007, I think. Wow. Um, kind of continuing the story and, and delving more into this uh, world explored through the eyes of this explorer, Arthur Dennison. Would you, and, and you wrote them, right? You were not just illustrating, you wrote these books as well. Do you, do you feel that you're equally both? <laughs> and I say that because I started, I've started a novel. Um, I did it as part of NaNoWriMo two years ago. I'm about 65,000 words into it. And I struggle often with, I need to choose a direction here, right? And do you run, have you run into that? Do you feel that you're artist and writer? Do you feel you're one more than the other? Or do you feel that um, through that journey with Dinotopia that both can live together? Yeah, I mean, probably in my high school and early college years at Berkeley, I was more a writer than an artist, um, although I did mainly nonfiction writing at the time. Fiction writing was a new idea for me, and writing for a picture book was is yet again a new idea. So I had to feel my way into this. Uh, I was lucky to meet up with uh, Ian Ballantyne and Benny Ballantyne, who were the founders of Ballantyne Books, Bantam Books. They were the ones who published the, uh, let's see, the, the Gnomes book in this country and Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. When they saw those ep- epic paintings, they said, there's, there's a book here and it's 160 pages. And they, they were help, helped me to make the connections with the publisher uh, and to get the book placed. 
Um, but they really were believers that I should be the one to write it. And I, and I really wanted to write it because one of the things that I believed after being inspired by Brian Froud and Alan Lee's fairies and um, Rainport Lee's uh, Gnomes book, which were published in the 70s, mm-hmm. that these books work best when they have very little writing. Uh, and I didn't want it to be just a, a whole novel with a few pictures. I wanted it to, to be a lot of pictures with just a little bit of writing, just enough writing to give context and continuity between the images. Right. So that was the approach that I used. The writing was really a matter of editing out and deleting material that wasn't absolutely necessary. So, so the whole length of the text is really quite short, but I had to do paintings, place them in the layout, come up with a rough idea of how long the the, the text had to be for that particular layout, and then write to that line length uh, to fit into that layout. So the whole book was done. I, I not only wrote it and, and painted it, but also designed it and laid it out on the page. That's incredible. I, I'm just uh, I'm in awe of that kind of level of work um, and being able to stretch yourself out that way. That's uh, and and you know when I was researching this, I discovered that you actually created some maquettes around understanding how the light would fall on some of these objects and buildings and dinosaurs and things, right? Yes, I I wanted this to be as realistic and believable as possible, as if it really was a place that you could visit. So I read a lot of 19th century travel journals and and kind of immersed myself in the way people wrote and and the kind of artwork people might have done at the time. And this is the time before uh, photography or had really been something you could take on location. Uh, in fact, one of the things I did to research this was to go to the Library of Congress and to ask them if, if the researchers could bring out examples of explorer sketchbooks from 1850 and before. So really before you would send a photographer on an expedition, when you would send an artist with you. Right. Like when Napoleon went to Egypt, he didn't have the opportunity to bring a photographer. So instead, he brought a, a, an artist with him to document all of the uh, the monuments and things that he saw. The same was true for early explorers of Mesoamerica. So I was thinking it would be really neat to go back to a time when there were still a lot of unexplored parts of the globe, uh, when you could presumably find an island where dinosaurs had never gone extinct and where maybe they had formed a whole, whole civilization of humans and dinosaurs. The real breakthrough on this one came when I, I showed this to my brother and he said, you know, you have people riding the dinosaurs, but instead of having the dinosaurs as the beasts of burden, why not have the dinosaurs domesticate the humans, <laughs> you know, and have, have maybe there's something that the dinosaurs have, some wisdom, some life experience that the humans benefit from. So it's kind of a, a real genuine exchange of, of, uh, of, of ideas between the two uh, t- types of beings. Uh, and uh, that really launched me into this whole idea that this is a kind of a harmonious, interdependent partnership uh, between humans and dinosaurs. Instead of doing something that was more obvious, which is to have, you know, dinosaurs as monsters or as evil creatures or or having some bad guy trying to destroy the world, I didn't, even though I love Tolkien and Star Wars, I didn't want to do the kind of good versus evil idea. I wanted to try to make it as utopian as possible. And I quickly realized that utopias are much harder to write about than, uh, than a dystopian world because uh, it's easy to fall into kind of a preachy or a an abstract sort of perspective. Right. I found what worked best was to be really earthy and, and practical, explain you know, how you clean up after the dinosaur parade <laughs> and, uh, and kind of how you communicate with dinosaurs. And so this, this whole process, it is easy to fill a book with, with ideas about how humans and dinosaurs could interact. 
uh, and um, and then one one book led to another. Uh, the world beneath takes us into the deep history of Dinotopia and some of the high tech machines that they built and mothballed under the island. Um, and the, the third book, First Flight, kind of takes us back into that earlier world thousands of years ago. And then the latest book, uh, Journey to Chandara, um, takes us into the part of the world where dinosaurs have feathers. Because one of the things that happened <laughs> was that uh, the scientists found a lot of dinosaurs uh, covered with feathers, the, the theropods, especially the meat-eating two-legged dinosaurs. Right. And uh, I had to figure out how to deal with that. I didn't want to go back into my earlier paintings and put feathers on <laughs> my early dinosaurs. So I, I had to come up with a way to explore a, a new part of the island where I could show that aspect of, of what we've learned about dinosaurs. That's an interesting challenge when science uh, <laughs> science kind of breaks your story a little bit, right? <laughs> or exposes uh, information that would have been really helpful when you first started out. Yeah, well, that's what's neat about dinosaurs is that, you know, they're real and mm-hmm. we can see their footprints and we can see their bones, we can hold their bones in our hands. And, and yet, you know, our idea of what they look like and how they behave is very much a, a product of our imagination, mm-hmm. and science is is a very much more imaginative process than most people realize, uh, and that's why uh, artists and scientists kind of work so closely together. Uh, a lot of scientists are good artists for that reason, is because they they're thinking about they're visualizing this world based on the scraps of evidence that they have. So I had the help of um, a number of different scientists, Jack Horner and Montana. Uh, and Mike Brett Sermon in, in the National Museum in Washington, Mark Terrell, um, and um, a lot of other people that, that kind of helped out with um, with imagining what these dinosaurs would look like. That's incredible. Is there any, you know, if somebody's considering doing something this like this for themselves, are there any lessons you would suggest to them, uh, you know, for a person who's been through this process? Well, I think, you know, nowadays it's a lot easier to get a book published through Kickstarter and through, you know, self-publishing, mm-hmm. and you can get your, your book out there. And I think it's easier to get a book published than it is to really get it out there and to get it into bookstores. Right. So working with a publisher is a trade-off, though, because you give up some control and you give up a lot of the income. But in the long run, I think it's best if you can, get, if you can work with a good publishing partner. Uh, they can help a lot to get a book out there. As far as planning a book, um, I, I don't know I, what works for other people, but I went through and did an outline first and then a very detailed storyboard. Uh, then I did the final artwork, and then I did the final writing. So the writing, the actual text came last, and that's very unsettling for a publisher. They want to see the writing up front. Right. Uh, so you know what a publisher is comfortable with, uh, is, and what you're comfortable with doing varies. You know, and it's I think it's hard for me anyway because I'm visually driven to completely plan a book in advance in written form. I really have to develop the visuals and the pictures, I mean, the visuals and the writing together, kind of side by side, because one will inspire the other. And, you know, the way movies are often developed, where you have the script first and then the pre-production of visuals, it seems a bit unnatural to me. I'm, I'm much more the way Walt Disney thought about developing animation, where you have artists as storyboarders and story developing development people, um, and, and then you work out the, the actual text of the story 
with the visuals driving them. Right. So I think everyone's process has to be different, but just as much planning as you can do uh, is uh, that's the key. And do you think in you know an electronic world like we have now, um, with you know all the digital media that we consume, that there's still a strong place for illustrated stories? Oh, absolutely. I think we're in a more visual time now, more receptive to fantasy and science fiction than we've ever been. And the success of manga and comics and graphic novels uh, is proof of that. And it's uh, a testament to that. I think that graphic novels is the only category of print publishing that's been steadily growing over the years. Right. So uh, so comics are, and, and, and graphic novels are something that I haven't actually done myself directly because I'm doing something a little bit different with illustrated books, but I have great respect for, and I, and I think, you know, there are great opportunities for books that are kind of on the dividing line between comics and illustrated books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Tan's The the Arrival is a good example of that. So there's probably kinds of picture books that, that haven't been done yet that people maybe are cooking up in their minds. But as far as the public being receptive to it, absolutely. There's definitely a lot of interest in visually told stories. Yeah. And so if you're listening to this and you have that story in your head, <laughs> get it on paper. <laughs> Don't let it go to the grave with you. Yeah. I think there's, there's something that has to happen that you have, where you have to commit to it. You have to say, I'm doing this. I'm setting aside the time. I mean, when I started working on Dinotopia, um, dinosaurs were definitely not popular. This was before um, Jurassic Park came out. Mm-hmm. And really, weren't dinosaurs had fallen out of favor, at least with adults. They were always popular with kids. But, you know, I, I had to tell all my clients, my illustration clients, I'm not going to be working on any science fiction covers or anything, any National Geographic stuff. I'm just going to work on this dinosaur book. And people said, you're nuts, you know, you're crazy <laughs> to be doing this. And it might have been a flop, you know. it's uh, That's the thing with a book that, it doesn't fit an existing category really neatly, uh, it can get lost in a bookstore too. And it could just as easily have happened that Dinotopia may not have connected with its audience. So you, you, it's a big chance, a big gamble. But, you know, you, you don't get hurt by gambles like that. It's not like climbing El Capitan or wingsuit diving or something. Right. It's it's uh, it's worth taking a chance like that. Well, I think we're all happy that you took the chance because it's, uh, it's incredible, Dinotopia and the, the illustrations. So I, I wanted to maybe dive into the plein air work that you're doing because I, I don't see anyone doing the kind of work that you do. And I'm, looked, I'm speaking about your YouTube channel. Um, and the work that you do in the plein air work and working with gouache and casein and watercolor. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And, and I'm just, it just, you're always producing this, like you must be doing it every day. <laughs> it is because I know what's involved in kind of editing a video together. And um, what I love about your YouTube videos is not only is it instructional as an artist, right? So you're talking about the palette and, and how you're approaching it and how you're thinking it through, but your, your voice and interacting with the people that are walking by, it's just, it's, I, I've watched your video and I just want to be a better artist and, and I want to be a better person. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this work and how much you do and, and what's involved and um, how, how do you pick your subjects, right? Well, okay, let's see. Uh, thank <laughs> a you. A lot of questions. <laughs> a lot of questions all at once. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, a lot of the plein air paintings and videos based on those come from very ordinary moments of my day, uh, often when my wife is shopping at the supermarket and I've got 45 minutes before she's done. I've, I've tried tagging along with her while she's shopping, but she likes to read the labels and I'm kind of more of a distraction and <laughs> annoyance than anything. <laughs> so I sit in the parking lot and I, and I look around and I can't go too far from there. Um, but, you know, the artists that I really admire 
are often people who just try to make art out of wherever they are, uh, whether it's Edward Hopper or Andrew Wyeth or people like that, or Adolf Menzel, who's a German artist of the 19th century. And so I find a- angles on things that intrigue me, often because of a lighting idea or color idea I want to play with. So I set up my easel. It's a homemade easel. There's a Facebook group called Sketch Easel Builders, where you can see my build and other people's builds for lightweight easels. Uh, and um, I work in a small uh, watercolor sketchbook, and uh, I work in gouache or casein, or sometimes just plain watercolor. And one of the reasons I like watercolor when I'm doing videos is that uh, watercolor is so much so alive on the page when you're filming it uh, that it's really exciting to watch under a camera. And uh, I started off, you know, when I was doing work in the movie business, I started working in water media. Actually, it was called um, cartoon color. It was a a cell vinyl paint. And so I I started off working in water media, doing background paintings for animated films. And uh, and so when I I worked for most of my career in oil, but when I started getting back into water media, I really loved it. And and it's so portable that you can take it in places where you could never take oil. Uh, Like one time I, I decided to try painting the oranges and lemons on display in the supermarket. They were uh, displayed underneath this, these big mirrors. And I loved the way they looked. And I thought, I got to paint those things from life. <laughs> Not take a picture of them and paint from that, but paint them from life. So I, what I did is I wore a uniform shirt and I walked into the market and I put my easel in the shopping cart. And I figured, you know, it's gouache, so it doesn't have a strong smell like oil would. And I just looked real purposeful. I just started painting. I thought, I'm only going to last five minutes before I get shut down by the manager. Uh, Ten minutes went by, half hour went by, you know, an hour went by, and then my wife came and we had it back. And I couldn't believe that no one said a thing to me. (laughs) And then someone explained to me later, they said, you know, if you ever work in a supermarket, there's a lot of people in uniforms that come and restock the shelves that represent all the different, you know, manufacturers of the of the pastries and whatnot. And as long as you have a uniform on, you can pretty much get away with anything in the market because people figure you're on assignment somehow. <laughs> so that's what happened. And but I got a really fun painting out of that. That's uh, that's such a cool story. Uh, that's that's great. I, I think that um, you know when I look at your paintings, I see the the final piece, and I'm thinking I I would not have chosen that scene. I look at it initially thinking I don't I don't understand right I don't um, I don't see what you see and then you start working on it and it's like of course I understand now why you've done what you've done and the way the light falls here and uh, you did a recent one where there was a uh, a house with a blue mailbox in front and you had a limited palette and you were working with those colors and and uh, drawing the, the the board on the on the side of the house and playing with the um, um, and you were answering questions at the same time and I thought it was like. This is fantastic because it, it, you know, for the urban sketcher or the person who just wants to do a plein air painting, it just, it feels good. It feels good to see somebody doing it and talking it through and with a limited palette and, uh, and your easel is a brilliant idea. I mean, f- for the person listening, if you want a portable easel, go get James's easel. And so, there, you know, I went and bought the plans. I built one myself. I'm going to build a second one. As soon as I went to my first urban sketching event, people wanted to buy my easel or have me build one. Because <laughs> it's, it's intentional and it's small. And uh, I recently attached it to my steering wheel and it worked great. And so, I wanted to ask you around the plein air work, 
do you do you do that all year? Because you're in a like in a colder environment at times, I would think. Do you still do it then? Yes, I do. And I, by the way, I saw your podcast. I heard your podcast and saw the picture where you were working with the <laughs> the, the steering wheel easel. So that's really cool. Um, but yeah, my, as far as the easel goes, my basic strategy with that is to get the work up as close as possible to your line of sight as possible. Just because if you have to look down into your lap or if you're sitting on the ground. Um, you're just dealing with a, a real big challenge to remember what you were looking at as you look straight down in your lap. The other thing is to get your left hand or your off hand, if, if you're right handed, your left hand, if you're left handed, your right hand, to get that off hand free of a paint rag or a brushes or any other stuff and have that nearby where you're working so that you can reach it quickly. And, and then also to have your palette and your mixing surface close to your, um, to your, your painting. So if you do all those things just geometrically in terms of just a work study challenge, it uh, it makes the painting process much easier. And since I'm filming, I have to have a camera that's set up on another tripod uh, or else I have to handhold it in my left hand. And uh, so I have to think about that too. And what I'm trying to do when I'm videoing it is capture a moment where I explain what I'm going to try to accomplish or what attracts me to the subject, show the palette a little bit, maybe show the subject so people can compare that to what I'm drawing, uh, and then just try to capture something of the unique experience of being on location. I did one where I, I went to a Jeep dealer and I tried to do a picture uh, of showing that, you know, doing a painting of a Jeep on location, but try to capture the dream of the Jeep buyer, right. you know, being off-road and ramping and stuff <laughs> like that. So I found a, a Jeep that was on a, on a tipped up on a ramp um, in front of a dealership, and I just painted out the ramp and made it look like it was flying. And, and that's part of it. We even test drove a Jeep to, to get into the mood. <laughs> but, but this goes back to you know where I started off working on the Artist's Guide to Sketching, uh, and, uh, which I co-authored with Tom Kincaid. And you know, I remember one time in um, Buffalo, New York, we were sitting on a drawbridge uh, sketching the ore freighters um, up there in around Buffalo. And um, at one point, this siren went off and all these horns started honking. And I realized the guy up in the booth was telling me that the drawbridge was going up. Luckily, it wasn't the kind where you know they tilt up. Just the middle section went straight up. But there I was sitting on this middle section. It was, I couldn't jump off it. It was going up already. And so I was doing this sketch as, as I was riding up on the drawbridge. And, uh, and the Excitement and energy of moments like that when you're painting on location are something that kind of somehow gets woven into the picture itself. And and if I can, if I can remember to capture that uh, somehow in, in the in, with the camera uh, and transmit that back to the viewer, that's part of the fun for me. Well, I, I will say that you did a, a painting not too long ago of a, a fairgrounds. And I have to say, when you were doing that, uh, that's what I could smell. I could smell the popcorn and the uh, and just all those smells from a fair, and uh, that's fantastic. I, I mean, I think we should all strive to be that uh, that good, where you can generate um, or activate some of the other senses by some of the work that you do. Well, we have a lot of artists that came before us that uh, painted on location and, and had real adventures doing it, uh, and they're a big inspiration. I mean, one of the biggest inspirations for me. I mentioned him earlier, is Adolf Menzel, uh, who's a German artist, uh, born in 1815 and lived into the, into the 20th century. And I edited a book for Dover about his drawings and uh, got a chance to work with a friend of mine, uh, Christian Schlierkamp in Berlin, who, uh, who helped translate some original sources. And this guy, I mean, he went into this crypt to sketch, to open up coffins with his 
team of people to try to figure out who these generals were buried under the crypt of a church. And he was working by lantern light and drawing these kind of half decayed faces of these dead generals. Wow. And uh, I mean, he had so many experiences like that that were just unbelievable. Uh, and so just reading about him inspires me for uh, what you could do on location. And that's why I'm so glad to see lately there's been this urban sketching phenomenon and the plein air painting phenomenon and so much interest in drawing and painting from life. Uh, because I think it's, you know, it's, someone said, when art is in trouble, uh, realism comes to the rescue. Uh, if not realism, at least a direct observation of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, we can look at other people's artwork and other styles all we want, but really what it comes down to is that we have to go to nature to get our inspiration. And when we do that, we have experiences which feed directly into the artwork and, and transmit to the viewer. And so when you're doing plein air, what, what causes you to you know consider, I mean, you've done a lot of casein underpaintings, and maybe you can explain why you like casein, and then uh, what's your preference of you know gouache over watercolor? Okay, well, um, I do kind of a range of different techniques in water media, everything from water-soluble colored pencil to transparent watercolor to gouache, which is really basically identical to watercolor with the addition of white mm-hmm. to make opaque, uh, and then to casein, which is an older version of opaque paint that has a sealed surface when it dries. So like when it, acrylic, when it dries, you, you, know, you can't re-dissolve re, uh, it again. Right. Casein is like that too, but the emulsion strength of the, the glue-like binder of casein isn't as strong as, as acrylic. So it doesn't have that sticky quality that acrylic sometimes has. Um, but it's strong enough so that if you lay down a layer first and then paint gouache over it, it won't pick up. Hmm. And that's what I, I like doing sometimes is to... Uh, lay down a colored underpainting. Um, sometimes it's a, a reddish painting underneath a greenish landscape, or a bluish uh, underpainting underneath a warm lens, a warm painting. Um, and there's a variety of different underpainting things I've been experimenting with. But it just gives you something to kind of push against when you're using opaque paints later. Um, and, uh, and so I sometimes will prime a few pages of my sketchbook with some interesting priming colors. You don't have to use casein for that. You can also use acrylic, uh, what is it, what do you call it? Um, acrylic gouache, which is an acrylic type, acrylic binder in a gouache paint. So it's a, a matte surface that's opaque, but it, but it dries to a sealed surface. Hmm. And do you think that helps you with establishing your values because you're eliminating that white of the paper so early? Yeah, I mean, it's something that someone like Thomas Moran, who is an American landscape painter, uh, he would do oil paintings in the studio, but he did most of his uh, on-location painting in uh, gouache on tone paper. So you can work on a tone, like a brown paper or tan paper, uh, or you can you can take a white paper and knock it down to to tan color or gray. Uh, it just gives you uh, it gives you automatically your half tones, mm-hmm. and you can come in with your highlights. But that's just one way of working. It's also fun to work starting with white and to keep it mainly in transparent watercolor as long as you can. And then just to use gouache if you need to. I also, I I really do love just pure watercolor. There's a beauty to it that uh, you can't get any other way, you know, where you actually really have to plan ahead and save out your, your whites and your highlights. 
right? I mean, I've, I've had a couple of guests, uh, one, you know, really strong in watercolor and the other in gouache. And it's just so interesting to get the, the feedback from artists like them and, and yourself um, in working with these mediums, because now I'm excited and motivated uh, in working with these. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what, am I, what motivates you? Like when you get up and you decide I'm going to do something today, like you've done so much, what pushes you forward? I mean, you know, we always worry about, uh, you know, are you going to hit a creative block at some point? But, you know, when you get up and you, you pack your kit and you head off and like, what, what's pulling you forward? Do you, is it still the smells? Is it like, what motivates you? Well, I mean, I uh, basically, I think just translating something that I see or imagine in a form that I can share with other people is the basic joy of it. Uh, and to have an idea for color or a light effect, and then to go out there and try to make that happen in a picture. A lot of times I'm, I'm frustrated and it doesn't work out. And I have to rub it off and start again. And that's, I, I don't mind it when that happens. It happens in the studio sometimes. It happens on location. It's just part of the wrestling process that has to happen um, if you have a strong idea and want to pull it off. Half of it is is uh, doing something in the sketchbook, and the other half is translating that into a blog post or an Instagram post or a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with, with video, I, I, if I do a longer video, I try to do a shorter ver- version that I do on Twitter and Instagram. I, I, I will do a couple different edits. But I love sharing it. I mean, I, that's the aspect of the, the modern age of computers and Internet that I really enjoy is this the whole dialogue that you can get started. And I'm, I'm still learning from that. And, and a lot of the ideas that I've, I've put into the easel or that I've developed with color are things that I've learned from um, people that I've shared ideas with on, on the blog and everything else. So it's definitely a two-way street. I don't see myself as a teacher uh, exactly, but more of as just sort of a, a fellow artist or a collaborator. Um, you know, I don't, since I, I'm self-taught, I don't really have the teacher's voice in my ear the way a lot of people who've been through atelier programs or who've been mentored by someone, they, they always have that teacher that's saying certain classic lines in their head. And I, I really don't have that. I, I can think back to artists that I admire from the past, and I've read what I can about their process, but I've had to just figure it out on my own and um, piece it together my own way. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I just love watching your videos. And I would suggest, you know, for the person listening, like just, you've got to watch a few of them, and um, it'll just inspire you to, and they're not very long, but it'll inspire you to put, uh, you know, pencil to paper or uh, brush to paper. They're fantastic. I mean, you learn so much, and it's such a positive experience. What's the one thing that you wish you knew uh, when you started your art journey that you know now? I, I, I don't know if that's catching you off a little bit, <laughs> but what do you wish you knew years ago that, you, uh, that you've that you learned over the over the time you've been an artist? Well, I think I always had a, a sense of this, even when I was younger, and that is not to try to uh, have some kind of style um, and to just um, uh, try to capture nature as truthfully as you can. Um, and I've always felt that way. I mean, I, I don't know if it's something that I've, I've, I, I don't know how I arrived at that idea, but um, I think that um, I, I, I've always been that way. And I, that's something that I mentioned to students that um, don't worry about developing a personal style. I think that's the advice that a lot of students get from teachers when they're getting their portfolios together. And um, I guess I come from a background of trying to break the picture plane and to throw yourself into a picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a piece of advice that I got from reading about Howard Pyle, who was an American illustrator around 1900. And that's what he told his students, is to jump through the picture frame and live inside the picture. 
that's why working as a movie background painter was so exciting for me at that early stage was that uh, I would do these paintings and they would go get, they would get photographed with the animation on top of them and then get cut into a continuity with sound effects and music. And when that went on the screen and the daily, when we watched the dailies each day, it really felt like I was living inside the picture. And I think that the problem with style is that um, you're kind of stuck looking at something superficial on the surface, something that goes out of date in a short amount of time. And, and, uh, so if if I was advising myself, that's probably what I'd say. But I, I think if I ran, if I ran across a younger version of myself, I'd say, yeah, yeah, I already know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm mindful of the time, and I don't want to keep you you too long. So I wanted to ask you. I usually ask my guests to talk about some homework. So for the you know the person listening right now, if uh, they wanted to action some of what we've talked about, what would you suggest would be good homework for them? Well, what I'm working on right now actually is a, a kind of a practical. A video that that takes the ideas of color, the color and light book, and develops them into a series of exercises and and a way, kind of a doorway into color and painting. Uh, and so, one of the early exercises is to do paintings in just black and white. So, when you're looking at a scene, to just interpret it with black and white paint. In fact, we did a a challenge to paint a gas station in black and white, and we did that on the blog. Uh, and then to when you kind of ease into that, you can use black, white, and a color, and one color, and uh, and that way you can just explore the the variations of color you can get with just that real limited palette. Then uh, after that, you can do three colors and white, so maybe a red, a blue, and a green, or a red, a blue, and a yellow uh, and white. I would suggest uh, you know start with black and white um, if you're just getting into painting. Um, and, uh, you can, if you want to stay with transparent watercolor, you can use Payne's gray or neutral tint or ivory black or lamp black, and then just do a wash drawing. I mean, this is something that a lot of the, um, early, uh, art instruction book writers like Arthur Guptill would have people do. Okay. Uh, and so, so that's a, that's a real good one. And if you can solve the, the challenge of value, uh, everything else will, is, is likely to fall into place. That's excellent. I mean, I think that um, a lot of what you said is going to really inspire others and it, you know, ties into the, the title of the podcast and drawing inspiration. And I, I have to comment on this because I was watching some of the other videos you've posted and I loved your comment. And I think you said that your father had said that everything begins with a drawing. Was it your dad that had said that? Yeah, my dad was a mechanical engineer and I kind of come from a family. My grandfather and great grandfather were all mechanical engineers. So they would when we'd go to a restaurant, we'd have to go to a cheap restaurant with paper napkins because we would be drawing pictures of <laughs> boats and cutaways. And I, I was really obsessed with making little devices that would climb a kite string. I'd build a kite and then I'd make a, a little thing on pulley wheels that would go up on sails and get to the top and release a payload like a, a parachute mm-hmm. and then come sailing back down the string again. So I'd have to design all this on paper. And that's when my dad, you know, he worked uh, designing linear accelerators for Stanford. Stanford University. Wow. And he said, you know, it starts with a drawing. Whatever, anything you see in the world starts as a drawing. Maybe nowadays it starts as a computer rendering, but it's still the same idea. It starts as imagination. And if, if there's one other tip I would have for people, it's to combine observational work with imaginative work side by side and develop them together. So try to draw from memory. If you run across an interesting person on your daily errands, um, when you come back home, try to draw them from memory and see how close you can come. 
uh, and then draw. If, if you're a person who's more inclined to comics or fantasy, take some a moment to really draw something from observation as faithfully as you can. If you can do the both side by side, it's amazing how how few people do both observational and imaginative drawing side by side. Um, you'll go much farther than if you just do one or the other. That's wonderful. I, I mean, that's a absolutely. I uh, I've done. I've tried to do more of that myself, but. Uh, it's tough and it's not my full-time job. <laughs> so I think we're all trying to do better at this. And uh, I really appreciate um, you sharing all your time and, and your expertise and your experience. Uh, I've learned so much and I'm going to probably have to read this Color and Light book another two or three times, I think, to make sure that I absorb it all. And Mike, I have a quick question for you because you showed me last uh, time we exchanged emails that you were doing a drawing of, of some koalas and you did a beautiful uh, sketch for the folks in Australia. And I wonder, what was that for and, and what came of that drawing? And what, what did you hope to happen with that? Well, I for me, it was, I, I draw a lot of animals. So when I saw some of the imagery and videos coming out of Australia, it just, it honestly broke my heart. And for me, the reason I drew that is I, I just felt I needed to. And I, I didn't do it for a group or a reason, except for me. And yeah. um, I I shed some tears as I was drawing it, just thinking of, you know, what was happening to more so the animals in, in Australia and 500 million being wiped from this planet, right, because of the wildfires. And so for me, that was an emotional experience. I I have it in my sketchbook. I've had a couple of people express interest in it and hoping to auction it. And you know, I I'm all for generating some some funds for uh, for the folks in Australia. And I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do that. So for me, it was my soul needed to speak, and it came out through my hand and my pencil. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a powerful picture you did, and I'm glad you did it. And it's I've been thinking about that too. I, I did some stamps of Australian dinosaurs for the Australia Post a few years ago and went there and went to one of their nature reserves. And I was wondering how that, how those places fared. I mean, it's just such a magical place. And my heart really goes out to the people there and the wildlife there that have suffered so much. Yeah, I think maybe what I'll do is I'll inject into the show notes here some uh, a couple of sites where people can, if they feel compelled to, uh, ways to support uh, both the people and the animals in Australia. Because it's uh, it it is heartbreaking, and you know I don't know about you, but you know I, I one of the well I think maybe the only person I've drawn is my mom, and it took me a long time to do that. She passed away when I was seventeen, but it's these emotional. Some of the drawings are really they come from the heart, right? And I look back on it, and you know maybe I'll try a new a, a different version of the same drawing, but. Uh, sometimes that's where it comes from, right? You just need to get it out yeah. and express it. There's an essay that uh, uh, Leo Tolstoy wrote called What is Art? Uh, where he defines art as the intentional transmission of emotion through uh, the writing or the artwork to another person. And I think that's really at the core of what we do, of any art form, whether it's dance or music or anything. Mm -hmm. And um, hmm. and for for anyone who's listening around the world, whether it's South America or India or Europe or Canada, um, I, I think there's a lot of people who are listening to podcasts and watching videos who maybe aren't like me, didn't grow up in a family of, of visual artists and are trying to figure this out on their own and trying to convince their parents that this is something they really want to do, even though it doesn't seem like a very likely career option. Um, but it's a, it's really the greatest, most satisfying thing to do with a person's life. Uh, it requires immense commitment and, and patience and, and perseverance. Um, but I, I wish everyone well who's, uh, who's embarking on this path. And, and I thank you, Mike, for 
doing this podcast and sharing your enthusiasm. Well, thanks so much, James. I mean, I uh, I love the work that you do. I encourage you to uh, to keep doing it. We love watching you. I wish you all the best uh, into 2020 and beyond as well. Are, are there any, you know, when it comes to the list of books and, and videos, uh, do you want to flag a couple of those? I mean, we'll provide links to all of that, but uh, beyond the the color and light, are there, because um, you've got some video tutorial series as well, right? Yeah, I've got some videos on uh, Gumroad, um, uh, one on casein and gouache and oil and uh, drawing animals and various others. So um, you can give those links. Also, I have a list of recommended books published by Dover uh, from the past that were inspirations to me, uh, and I can give you the link to that as well. So people, there's a lot of resources out there, a lot of a lot of books and things. I mentioned Loomis and Harold Speed, and there's various others. So I'll send you those links as well. And and uh, whatever people, whatever category of art people want to do, there's there's books out there that uh, can help out. That's wonderful. And I'll include links to your Instagram, your Twitter, and your YouTube channel as well, including your website. And so we'll embed that all in the show notes. Okay, great. Thanks again, James. I really appreciate your time. You've inspired me and I'm sure uh, many others. Okay, my pleasure. So long. Thanks, James. Show notes, including links to everything James and I discussed, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 18. You can find links to all my social media accounts at drawinginspiration.fm, including my Instagram, which is Mike underscore Henley, where I post all my art. Follow me or tag me so I can see what you've created recently. Until next time, be kind to one another and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>